0: Chapter 13 Les frères, les maîtres du temple, que toi rempli à temple d'or et d'argent et de richesse, et qui me noie telle noblesse, où sont-ils, que sont devenus? Chronique à la suite du roman de Favel. Et in Arcadia Ego That evening Pilades was the image of the Golden Age, one of those evenings when you feel that not only will there definitely be a revolution, but that the association of manufacturers will put the bill for it. Where but at Pilades could you watch the bearded owner of a cotton mill wearing a parka play hearts with a future fugitive from justice dressed in a double-breasted jacket and tie? This was the dawn of great changes in style. Until the beginning of the sixties, beards were fascist and you had to trim them and shave your cheeks in the style of Italo Balbo. But by sixty-eight beards meant protest and now they were becoming neutral, universal, a matter of personal preference. Beards have always been masks. You wear a fake beard to keep from being recognized. But in those years, the early seventies, a real beard was also a disguise. You could lie while telling the truth, or rather by making the truth elusive and enigmatic. A man's politics could no longer be guessed from his beard. That evening beards seemed to hover on clean-shaven faces whose very lack of hair suggested defiance. I digress. Belbo and Diotalevi arrived tense, exchanging harsh whispers about the dinner they had just come from. Only later did I learn what Signor Garamond's dinners were. Belbo went straight to his favorite distillations. Diotalevi, after pondering at length, decided on tonic water. We found a little table in the back. Two tram drivers, who had to get up early the next morning, were leaving. Now then, Diotalevi said, these Templars. <sighs> but really, you can read about the Templars anywhere. We prefer the oral tradition, Belbo said. It's more mystical, Televi said. God created the world by speaking. He didn't send a telegram. The uplooks, stop, Belbo said. Epistle follows, I said. The Templars, then? Belbo asked. Very well, I said. To begin with— You should never begin with to begin with, Diotalevi objected. To begin with, there's the First Crusade. Godefroy worships at the Holy Sepulchre and fulfills his vow. Baudouin becomes the first king of Jerusalem, a Christian kingdom in the Holy Land. But holding Jerusalem is one thing, quite another to conquer the rest of Palestine. The Saracens are down but not out. Life's not easy for the new occupiers and not easy for the pilgrims either. And then in 1118, during the reign of the II, nine young men, led by a fellow named Hugues de Pin, arrive and set up the nucleus of an order of the poor fellow-soldiers of Jesus Christ, a monastic order but with sword and shield. The three classic vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, plus a fourth, defense of pilgrims, the king, the bishop, everyone in Jerusalem contributes money, offers the knights lodging, and finally sets them up in the cloister of the old Temple of Solomon. From then on they are known as the Knights of the Temple. But what were they really? Hugues and the original eight others were probably idealists caught up in the mystique of the crusade. But later recruits were most likely younger sons seeking adventure. Remember the new kingdom of Jerusalem was sort of the California of the day the place you went to make your fortune. Prospects at home were not great, and some of the knights may have been on the run, for one reason or another. I think of it as a kind of foreign legion. What do you do if you're in trouble? You join the Templars, see the world, have some fun, do a little fighting. They feed you and clothe you, and in the end, as a bonus, you save your soul. Of course, you had to be pretty desperate, because it meant going out into the desert, sleeping in a tent, spending days and days without seeing a living soul except other Templars, and maybe a Turk now and then. In the meantime you ride under the sun, dying of thirst, and cut the guts out of other poor bastards." I stopped for a moment. Maybe I'm making it sound too much like a Western. There was probably a third phase. Once the Order became powerful, people may have wanted to join even if they were well off at home. By that time, though, you could be a Templar without having to go to the Holy Land. You could be a Templar at home, too. It gets complicated. Sometimes they sound like tough soldiers, and sometimes they show sensitivity. For example, you can't call them racists. Yes, they fought the Muslims, that was the whole point, but they fought in a spirit of chivalry and with mutual respect. Once, when the ambassador of the emir of Damascus was visiting Jerusalem, the Templars let him say his prayers in a little mosque that had been turned into a Christian church. One day a Frank came in, was outraged to see a Muslim in a holy place, and started to rough him up. But the Templars threw the intolerant Frank out and apologized to the Moslem. Later on this fraternization with the enemy helped lead to their ruin. One of the charges against them at their trial was that they had dealings with esoteric Moslem sects, which may have been true. They were a little like the nineteenth-century adventurers who went native and caught the Mal D'Afrique. The Templars, lacking the usual monastic education, were slow to grasp the fine points of theology. Think of them as Lawrences of Arabia who, after a while, started dressing like sheikhs. But it's difficult to get an objective picture of their behavior because contemporary Christian historiographers, William of Tyre, for example, take every opportunity to vilify them. Why? The Templars became too powerful too fast. It all goes back to St. Bernard. You're familiar with St. Bernard, of course, a great organizer. He reformed the Benedictine order and eliminated decorations from churches. If a colleague got on his nerves, as Abelard did, he attacked him McCarthy-style and tried to get him burned at the stake. If he couldn't manage that, he'd burn the offender's books instead. And of course he preached the crusade. Let us take up arms and you go forth. You don't care for him, Belbo remarked. If I had my way, St. Bernard would end up in one of the nastier circles of the Inferno. Saint hell! But he was good at self-promotion. Look at how Dante treats him, making him the Madonna's right-hand man. He got to be a saint because he buttered up all the right people. But to get back to the Templars, Bernard realized right away that this idea had possibilities. He supported the nine original adventurers, transformed them into a militia of Christ. You could even say that the heroic view of the Templars was his invention. In 1128 he held a council in Troyes for the express purpose of defining the role of those new soldier monks. And a few years later he wrote an elogium on them and drew up their rule—seventy-two articles. The articles are fun to read, there's a little of everything in them—daily mass, no contact with excommunicated knights, though if one of them applies for admission to the temple he must be received in a Christian spirit. You see what I mean about the foreign legion. They're supposed to wear simple white cloaks, no furs, at most a lambskin or a ram's pelt. They're forbidden to wear the curved shoes, so fashionable at the time, and must sleep in their underwear, with one pallet, one sheet, and one blanket. With the heat there I can imagine the stink," Belbo said. (sighs) We'll come to the stink in a minute. There were other tough measures in the rule. One bowl for each two men, eat in silence, meat three times a week, penance on Fridays, up at dawn every day. If the work has been especially heavy they can sleep an extra hour, but in return they must recite thirteen paters in bed. There is a master and a whole series of lower ranks, down to sergeants, squires, attendants and servants. Every night will have three horses and one squire, no decorations are allowed on bridles, saddles or spurs, simple but well-made weapons, hunting forbidden except for lions, in short a life of penance and battle and don't forget chastity. The rule is particularly insistent about that. Remember, these are men who are not living in a monastery. They're fighting a war, living in the world, if you can use that word for the rat's nest the Holy Land must have been in those days. The rule says in no uncertain terms that a woman's company is perilous and that the men are allowed to kiss only their mothers, sisters, and aunts. Aunts, eh? Belbo grumbled. I'd have been more careful there. "'But if memory serves, weren't the Templars accused of sodomy? "'There's that book by Klosovsky, the Baphomet. "'Baphomet was one of their satanic divinities, wasn't he? "'I'll get to that, too. "'But think about it for a moment. "'You live for months and months in the desert, "'out in the middle of nowhere, "'and at night you share a tent with the guy "'who's been eating out of the same bowl as you. "'You're tired and cold and thirsty and afraid. "'You want your mama. "'So what do you do?' "'Manly love, the Theban legion.' Belbo suggested. The other soldiers haven't taken the Templar vow. When a city is sacked, they get to rape the dusky, Moorish maids with amber bellies and velvet eyes. And what is the Templar supposed to do amid the scent of the cedars of Lebanon? You can see why there was the popular saying, to drink and blaspheme like a Templar. It's like a chaplain in the trenches who drinks brandy and curses with his illiterate soldiers. The Templar seal depicts the knights always in pairs, one riding behind the other on the same horse. Now why should that be? The rule allows them three horses each. It must have been one of Bernard's ideas, an attempt to symbolize poverty or perhaps their double role as monks and knights, but you can imagine what people must have said about it, two men galloping, one with his ass pressed against the other's belly. But they may have been slandered." "'They certainly were asking for it,' Belbo interrupted. "'That St. Bernard wasn't stupid, was he?' "'Stupid? No.' But he was a monk himself, and in those days monks had their own strange ideas about the body. I said before that maybe I was making this sound too much like a western, but now that I think about it, listen to what Bernard has to say about his beloved knights. I brought this quotation with me because it's worth hearing. They shun and abhor mimes, magicians and jugglers, lewd songs and buffoonery. They cut their hair short, for the apostle says it is shameful for a man to groom his hair. Never are they seen quaffed and rarely washed. Their beards are unkempt, caked with dust and sweat from their armor and the heat." "'I would hate to sleep in their quarters,' Belbo said. "'It's always been characteristic of the hermit,' Dio T'Levi declared, "'to cultivate a healthy filth, to humiliate his body. Wasn't it St. Macarius who lived on a column and picked up the worms that dropped from him and put them back on his body so that they, who were also God's creatures, might enjoy their banquet?' The Stylite was St. Simeon, Belbo said, and I think he stayed on that column so he could spit on the people who walked below. How I detest the cynicism of the Enlightenment, Diotalevi said. In any case, whether Macarius or Simeon, I'm sure there was a Stylite with worms, but of course I'm no authority on the subject, since the follies of the Gentiles don't interest me. Whereas your Gerona rabbis were spick and span, Belbo said. They lived in squalor because you Gentiles kept them in the ghetto. The Templars, on the other hand, chose to be squalid. Let's not go overboard, I said. Have you ever seen a platoon of recruits after a day's march? The reason I'm telling you all this is to help you understand the dilemma of the Templar. He had to be mystic, ascetic, no eating, drinking, or screwing, but at the same time he roamed the desert cutting off the heads of Christ's enemies. The more heads he cut off, the more points he earned for paradise. He stank, got hairier every day, and then Bernard insisted that after conquering a city he couldn't jump on top of some young girl—or old hag, for that matter. And on moonless nights, when the Simoom blew over the desert, he couldn't seek any favors from his favorite fellow-soldier. How can you be a monk and a swordsman at the same time, disemboweling people one minute and reciting Ave Maria's the next? They tell you not to look even your female cousin in the eye, but when you enter a city after days of siege the other crusaders hunt the caliph's wife before your very eyes, and marvelous Shulamite women undo their bodices and say, Take me, take me, but spare my life. No, the Templar had to stay hard, reciting Compline, hairy and stinking, as St. Bernard wanted him to. For that matter, if you just read the retreats... The what? The statutes of the Order, drawn up rather late, after the Order had put on its robe and slippers, so to speak. There's nothing worse than an army when the war is over. At one point, for instance, brawling is forbidden, it's forbidden to wound a Christian for revenge, forbidden to have commerce with women, forbidden to slander a brother. A Templar could not allow a slave to escape, lose his temper and threaten to defect to the Saracens, let a horse wander off, give away any animal except a dog or cat, be absent without leave, break the master's seal, go out of the barracks at night, lend the order's money without authorization, or throw his habit on the ground in anger. From prohibitions you can tell what people normally do, Balbo said. It's a way of drawing a picture of daily life. Let's see, Dio said. A Templar, annoyed at something the brothers said or did that evening, rides out at night without leave, accompanied by a little Saracen boy and with three capons hanging from his saddle. He goes to a girl of loose morals and, bestowing the capons upon her, engages in illicit intercourse. During this debauchery the Saracen boy rides off with the horse and our Templar, even more sweat-covered and dirty than usual, crawls home with his tail between his legs. In an attempt to pass unnoticed, he slips some of the temple's money to a Jewish usurer who is waiting like a vulture on its perch. Thou hast said it, Caiaphas, Belbo remarked. We're talking in stereotypes here. With the money the Templar tries to recover, if not the Saracen boy, at least a semblance of his horse. But a fellow Templar hears about the misadventure, and one night we know that envy is endemic in such communities. He drops some heavy hints at supper when the meat is served. The captain grows suspicious. The suspect stammers, flushes, then draws his dagger and flings himself on his brother. On the treacherous sycophant, Belbo corrected him. Oh, on the treacherous sycophant, good. He flings himself on the wretch, slashing his face. The wretch draws his sword, an unseemly brawl ensues, the captain with the flat of his sword tries to restore order. The other brothers snigger. Drinking and blaspheming like Templars, Belbo said. God's bodkin, and God's name, swoons, God's blood, I said. Our hero is enraged, and what does a Templar do when he's enraged? He turns purple, Belbo suggested. Right, he turns purple, tears off his habit, and throws it on the ground. How about. "'You can shove this tunic, you can shove your goddamn temple,' I suggested. And then he breaks the seal with his sword and announces that he's joining the Saracens, violating at least eight precepts at one blow. "'Anyway,' I said, driving home my point, "'imagine a man like that who says he's joining the Saracens, and one day the king's bailiff arrests him, shows him the white-hot irons, and says, "'Confess, knave, admit you stuck it up your brother's behind.' "'Who, me? Your irons make me laugh. I'll show you what a Templar is.' I'll stick it up your behind, and the Pope's, and King Philip's too, if he comes within reach. A confession? That must be how it happened, Belbo said. Then it's off to the dungeon with him, and a coat of oil every day, so he'll burn better when the time comes. They were just a bunch of children, Dio concluded. We were interrupted by a girl with a strawberry birthmark on her nose. She had some papers in her hand, and asked if we had signed the petition for the imprisoned Argentinian comrades. Belbo signed without reading it. "'They're even worse off than I am,' he said to Dio who was regarding him with a bemused expression. "'He can't sign,' Belbo said to the girl. "'He belongs to a small Indian sect that forbids its members to write their own names. Many of them are in jail because of government persecution.' The girl looked sympathetically at Dio and passed the petition to me. "'And who are they?' I asked. "'What do you mean, who are they? Argentinian comrades!' But what group do they belong to? The Takwaras, I think. The Takwaras are fascists, I said, as if I knew one group from the other. Fascist pig, the girl hissed at me. She left. What you are saying, then, the Otalevi asked, is that the Templars were just poor bastards? No, I said. Perhaps I shouldn't have tried to liven up the story. We were talking about the rank and file, But from the beginning the order received huge donations, and little by little set up commanderies throughout Europe. Alfonso of Aragon, for example, gave them a whole region. In fact, in his will he wanted to leave the kingdom to them in the event that he died without issue. The Templars didn't trust him, so they made a deal, took the money and ran, more or less. Except that instead of money it was half a dozen strongholds in Spain. The king of Portugal gave them a forest. Since the forest happened to be occupied by the Saracens, the Templars organized an attack drove out the Moors, and in the process founded Coimbra. And these are just a few episodes. The point is this. Part of the order was fighting in Palestine, but the bulk of it stayed home. Then what happened? Let's say someone has to go to Palestine. He needs money, and he's afraid to travel with jewels and gold, so he leaves his fortune with the Templars in France, or in Spain, or in Italy. They give him a receipt, and he gets cash for it in the East. A letter of credit, Belbo said. That's right. They invented the checking account long before the bankers of Florence. What with donations, armed conquests, and a percentage from their financial operations, the Templars became a multinational. Running an operation like that took men who knew what they were doing, men who could convince Innocent II to grant them exceptional privileges. The order was allowed to keep its booty, and wherever they owned property, they were answerable not to the king, not to the bishops, or to the patriarch of Jerusalem, but only to the pope. They were exempted from all tithes, but they had the right to impose their own tithes on the lands under their control. In short, the organization was always in the black, and nobody had the right to pry into it. You can see why the bishops and monarchs didn't like them, though they couldn't do without them. The crusaders were terrible screw-ups. They marched off without any idea of where they were going or what they would find when they got there. But the Templars knew their way around. They knew how to deal with the enemy. They were familiar with the terrain and the art of fighting. The order of the temple had become a serious business, even though its reputation was based on the boasting of its assault troops." "'And the boasting was empty?' Diotalavi asked. "'Often. Here again. What's amazing is the gulf between their political and administrative skill on the one hand, and their green beret style on the other, all guts and no brains. Let's take the story of Ascalon.' "'Yes, let's,' Belbo said after a moment's distraction as he greeted, with a great show of lust, a girl named Dolores. She joined us, saying, I must hear the story of Ascalon. All right. One fine day, the king of France, the Holy Roman Emperor, King the III of Jerusalem, and the Grand Masters of the Templars and the Hospitallers, all decided to lay siege to Ascalon. They set out together, king, court, patriarch, priests, carrying crosses and banners, and the archbishops of Tyre, Nazareth, Caesarea. It was like a big party. Oroflams and standards flying, tents pitched around the enemy city, drums beating. Ascalon was defended by one hundred and fifty towers, and the inhabitants had long been preparing for a siege. All the houses had slits made in the walls. They were like fortresses within the fortress. I mean, the Templars were smart fighters. They should have known these things. But no, everybody got excited, and they built battering rams and wooden towers, You know, those constructions on wheels that you push up to the enemy walls so you can hurl stones or firebrands or shoot arrows while the catapults sling rocks from a distance. The Ascalonites tried to set fire to the towers, but the wind was against them and they burned their own walls instead, until in one place a wall collapsed. The attackers all charged the breach. And then a strange thing happened. The Grand Master of the Templars had a cordon set up so that only his men could enter the city. Cynics say he was trying to make sure that only the Templars would get the booty. A kinder explanation is that he feared a trap and wanted to send his own brave men in first. Either way, I wouldn't make him head of a military academy. Forty Templars ran full steam straight through the city, came to a screeching halt in a great cloud of dust at the wall on the other side, looked at one another, and wondered what in hell they were doing there. Then they about-faced and ran back, racing past the Saracens, who pelted them with rocks and darts, slaughtering the lot of them. Grandmaster included. Then they closed the breach, hung the corpses from the walls, and jeered at the Christians with obscene gestures and horrid laughter. The Moor is cruel, cool, Belbo said. Like children, Diotavio added. These Templars of yours were really crazy, Dolores said with admiration. They remind me of Tom and Jerry, Belbo said. I felt a little guilty. After all, I'd been living with the Templars for two years, and I loved them yet now, catering to the snobbery of my audience, I had made them sound like characters out of a cartoon. Maybe it was William of Tyre's fault, treacherous historiographer, that he was. I could almost see my knights of the temple, bearded and blazing, the bright red crosses on their snow-white cloaks, their mounts wheeling in the shadow of the Beauson, their black and white banner. They had been so dazzlingly intent on their feast of death and daring Perhaps the sweat St. Bernard talked about was a bronze glow that lent a sarcastic nobility to their fearsome smiles as they celebrated their farewell to life. Lions in war, Jacques de Vitry called them, but sweet lambs in times of peace, harsh in battle, devout in prayer, ferocious to their enemies but full of kindness toward their brothers. The white and the black of their banner were so opposite. To the friends of Christ they were pure, to his adversaries they were grim and terrible. Pathetic champions of the faith, last glimmer of chivalry's twilight. Why play any old Ariosto to them when I could be their Joinville? The author of the Histoire de Saint-Louis had accompanied the sainted king to the Holy Land, acting as both scribe and soldier. I recalled now what he had written about the Templars. This was more than a hundred and eighty years after the order was founded, and it had been through enough crusades to undermine anyone's ideals. The heroic figures of Queen Melisande and Baudouin the Leper King had vanished like ghosts. Factional fighting in Lebanon, blood-soaked even then, had drawn to a close. Jerusalem had already fallen once. Barbarossa had drowned in Cilicia. Richard the Lionheart, defeated and humiliated, had gone home disguised as, of all things, a Templar. Christianity had lost the battle. The Moors' view of the confederation of autonomous potentates united in the defense of their civilization was very different. They had read Avicenna. They were not ignorant like the Europeans. How could you live alongside a tolerant, mystical, libertine culture for two centuries without succumbing to its allure, particularly when you compared it to Western culture, which was crude, vulgar, barbaric, and Germanic? Then in 1244 came the final, definitive fall of Jerusalem. The war, begun a hundred and fifty years earlier, was lost. The Christians had to lay down their arms in a land now devoted to peace and the scent of the cedars of Lebanon. Poor Templars, your epic all in vain. Little wonder that in the tender melancholy of their faded, aging glory they lent an ear to the secret doctrines of Moslem mystics, hieratic guardians of hidden treasures. Perhaps that was how the legend of the Knights of the Temple was born, the legend with which some prostrated and yearning minds are still obsessed, the myth of a boundless power lying unused, unharnessed. Even in Joan V.'s day, the St. King Louis, at whose table Aquinas dined, persisted in his belief in the crusade, despite two centuries of dreams ruined by the victor's stupidity. Even in Joan V.'s day, the St. King Louis, at whose table Aquinas dined, persisted in his belief in the crusade, despite two centuries of dreams ruined by the victor's stupidity. Was it worth one more try? Yes, Louis said and the templars were ready and willing they followed him into defeat because that was their job without a crusade how could they justify the temple louis attacks damietta from the sea the enemy shore glitters with pikes halberds oriflammes shields and scimitars fine-looking men joinville says chivalrously who carry arms of gold struck by the sun louis could wait but he decides to land at any cost My faithful followers, we will be invincible if we are inseparable in our charity. If we are defeated, we will be martyrs. If we triumph, the glory of God will be the greater. The Templars don't believe it, but they have been trained to be knights of the ideal, and this is the image of themselves they must confirm. They will follow the king in his mystical madness. Incredibly, the landing is a success. Equally incredibly, the Saracens abandon Damietta. But the king hesitates to enter the city, fearing treachery. But there is no treachery. The city is his for the taking, along with its treasures and its hundred mosques, which Louis immediately converts into churches of the Lord. Now he has a decision to make. Should he march on Alexandria or on Cairo? The wise choice would be Alexandria, thus depriving Egypt of a vital port. But the expedition has its evil genius, the king's brother, Robert d'Artois, a megalomaniac hungry for glory. A typical younger son. He advises Louis to head for Cairo, the heart of Egypt. The Templars, cautious at first, are now champing at the bit. The king issues orders to avoid isolated skirmishes, but the marshal of the temple takes it upon himself to violate that prohibition. Seeing a squadron of the sultan's mamelukes, he cries out, Now have at them in the name of God, for a shame like this I cannot bear. The Saracens dig in beyond the river near Mansoura. The French try to build a dam and create a ford, protecting it with their mobile towers, but the Saracens have learned the art of Greek fire from the Byzantines. Greek fire is a barrel-like container with a kind of big spear as a tail. It is hurled like a lightning bolt, a flying dragon. It burns so brightly that in the Christian camp at night one can see as clearly as if it were day. While the camp burns, a Bedouin traitor leads the king and his men to a ford in exchange for a payment of three hundred bezants. The king decides to attack. The crossing is not easy, many are drowned and swept away by the current, while three hundred mounted Saracens wait on the other side. When the main body of the attack force finally comes ashore, the Templars, as planned, are in the vanguard, followed by the Comte d'Artois. The Moslem horsemen flee and the Templars wait for the rest of the Christian army, but Artois and his men dash off in pursuit of the enemy. The Templars, anxious to avoid dishonor, then join in the assault but catch up with Artois only after he has penetrated the enemy camp and begun a massacre. The Moslems fall back toward Mansoura, which is just what Artois had been hoping for. He sets out after them. The Templars try to stop him. Brother Gilles, supreme commander of the Temple, tries flattery, telling Artois that he has performed a wondrous feat, perhaps the greatest ever achieved overseas. But Artois, eager for glory, accuses the Templars of treachery, claiming that the Templars and Hospitallers could have conquered this territory long ago if they had really wanted to. He has shown them what a man with blood in his veins can do. This is too much. The Templars must prove that they are second to none. They charge into the city and chase the enemy all the way to the wall on the opposite side. Then suddenly the Templars realize that they have repeated the mistake of Ascalon. While the Christians are busy sacking the Sultan's palace, the infidels reassemble and fall upon the now unorganized group of jackals. Have the Templars allowed themselves to be blinded once again by greed? Some say that before accompanying Artois into the city, Brother Gilles spoke to him with stoic lucidity. "'My lord, my brothers and I are not afraid. We follow you. But great is our doubt that any of us will return.' and indeed Artois was killed and many good knights died with him, including two hundred and eighty Templars. It was more than a defeat, it was a disgrace, yet not even Joinville recorded it as such. It happened, and that is the beauty of war. Joinville's pen turns many of these battles and skirmishes into charming ballets. Heads roll here and there, implorations to the good lord abound, and the king sheds tears over a loyal follower's death but the whole thing is technicolor, complete with crimson saddlecloths, gilded trappings, the flash of helmets and swords under the yellow desert sun, and an azure sea in the background. And who knows, perhaps the Templars really lived their daily butchery that way. Joanne perspective shifts vertically, depending on whether he has fallen from his horse or just remounted. Isolated scenes are sharply focused, but the larger picture eludes him. We see individual duels whose outcome is often random Joinville sets off to help the lord of Vanon. A Turk strikes him with his lance, Joinville's horse sinks to its knees, Joinville falls over the animal's head, he stands up, sword in hand, and Chevalier Erard de Cypres, may God grant him grace, points to a ruined house where they can take refuge. They are trampled by Turks on horseback. Chevalier Frédéric de Lupez is struck from behind, which made so large a wound that the blood poured from his body as if from the bunghole of a barrel. Sivray receives a slashing blow in the face so that his nose was left dangling over his lips, and so on until help arrives. They leave the house and move to another part of the battlefield, where there are more deaths and last-minute rescues and loud prayers to St. James. In the meantime the good Comte de Soissons, wielding his sword, cries, Seneschal, let these dogs howl as they will. By God's bonnet we shall talk of this day yet, you and I, sitting at home with our ladies, the king asks for news of his brother, the wretched Comte d'Artois, and Brother Henri d'Oronnet, provost of the Hospitallers, answers that he has good news, for certainly the count is now in paradise. God be praised for everything He gives, says the king, big tears falling from his eyes. But it isn't always a ballet, angelic and blood-stained. Grand Master Guillaume de Sonnac dies, burned alive by Greek fire. With the great stink of corpses and the shortage of provisions, the Christian army is stricken with scurvy. St. Louis's men are finally routed. The king is so badly racked by dysentery that he cuts out the seat of his pants to save time in battle. Damietta is lost, and the queen has to negotiate with the Saracens, paying 500,000 livres tournois to ransom the king. The Crusades were carried out in virtuous bad faith. On his return to Saint-Jean-d'Acre, Louis is hailed as a victor. The whole city comes out in procession to greet him, including the clergy, ladies, and children. The Templars, seeing which way the wind is blowing, try to open negotiations with Damascus. Louis finds out, and, furious at being bypassed, repudiates the new Grand Master in the presence of the Moslem Ambassadors. The Grand Master has to retract the promises he made to the enemy, has to kneel before the king and beg his pardon. No one can say the knights haven't fought well and selflessly, But the King of France still humiliates them to reassert his power, and, half a century later, Louis' successor Philip, to reassert his power, will send the knights to the stake. In 1291 Saint-Jean-d'Acre is conquered by the Moors, and all its inhabitants are put to the sword. The Christian kingdom of Jerusalem is gone for good. The Templars are richer, more numerous, more powerful than ever, but they were born to fight in the Holy Land, and in the Holy Land there are none left. They live in splendor, isolated in their commanderies throughout Europe and in the temple in Paris, but they dream still of the plateau of the temple in Jerusalem in their days of glory, dream of the handsome church of St. Mary Lateran spangled with votive chapels, dream of their banquets of trophies and all the rest, the forges, the saddlery, the granaries, the stables of two thousand horses, the cantering troops of squires, aides, and turcopoles, the red crosses on white cloaks, the dark surplices of the attendants, the sultan's envoys with their great turbans and gilded helmets, the pilgrims, a crossroads filled with dapper patrols and outriders, and the delights of rich coffers, the port from which instructions and cargoes were dispatched for the castles on the mainland or on the islands or on the shores of Asia Minor. All gone now, my poor Templars! That evening, at Pilade's, by then on my fifth whiskey, for which Belbo was paying, insisted on paying, I realized that I had been dreaming aloud, and, the shame of it, with feeling. But I must have told a beautiful story, full of compassion, because Dolores' eyes were glistening, and Dio Televi, having taken the mad plunge and ordered a second tonic water, was seraphically gazing toward heaven, or rather toward the bar's decidedly non-Cabbalistic ceiling. Perhaps, he murmured, they were all those things—lost souls and saints, horsemen and grooms, bankers and heroes. "'They were remarkable, no doubt about it,' was Belbo's summation. "'But tell me, Cassaubin, do you love them?' "'I'm doing my thesis on them. If you do your thesis on syphilis you end up loving even the spirocheta pallida.' "'It was lovely,' Dolores said, "'like a movie. But I have to go now. I have to mimeograph the leaflets for tomorrow morning.' There's picketing at the Morelli factory. Lucky you, you can afford it, Belbo said. He raised a weary hand and stroked her hair. Then he ordered what he said was his last whiskey. It's almost midnight. I say that not for normal people. I say it for Diotalevi's benefit. But let's go on. I want to hear about the trial. Who, what, when, and why. Cour quomo do quando, Diotalevi agreed. Yes, yes.